God uses personal and familial pain and adversity to create and develop faith. You need to know this. God will teach a man to pray by making his wife sick or by withholding children or by frustrating a dream or expectation. Knowing that can save you a lot of time and heartache in the Christian life. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Again and again in these stories in Genesis, we've seen that God uses difficulty and affliction to create faith in his chosen people. It's a lesson that we struggle to learn, I know for me as well, but it's a truth that we try very hard to avoid, but we are meeting that truth again this week in Genesis chapter 25. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 25. Let me read you what Derek Kidner says about this chapter. He says, The death of Abraham is given its setting in the catalog of families that sprang from him. Such is the onward thrust of Genesis. Among these, true to pattern, those that were to play little part in the history of salvation make their bow first to leave the chief actors in possession. If I could have said it better myself, I would have. This chapter is about the blessing of God on Abraham's family in general and on the line of Isaac in particular. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. We aren't sure, actually, whether Sarah was still alive when Abraham took another wife or took a concubine. It seems likely that she was, so this would be after the birth of Isaac, but before the death of Sarah. So this is probably as good a time as any to discuss polygamy, the practice of having more than one wife. Remember that the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It is the story of bad guys that need Jesus. So Sometimes what we have in the Bible are stories about bad guys doing bad things, things that are being described, not prescribed, meaning that the Bible tells us what Abraham does, but it doesn't tell us to do what Abraham did. Abraham did lots of things that we shouldn't do, like lying multiple times about his wife being his sister. The Bible records that, but does not commend that. And so it seems with polygamy. There are no commands in the Bible to have more than one wife. God only gives Adam one wife. That is clearly the original pattern. It's only after the fall, when men are moving away from God and each other, that we have polygamy. The first mention of polygamy is in the story of Lamech, that crazy guy who had multiple wives and sang songs about killing other men. So that's clearly not a recommendation. That's a description of our descent into depravity. 
The Old Testament, on the whole, seems to permit polygamy in that it doesn't outright forbid it, but it also limits it in passages like Deuteronomy 17, 17, where it says, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And then in the New Testament, we read that elders and pastors must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc., 1 Timothy 3.2. So I think it would be fair to say that monogamy was the original pattern. It is the original pattern, uh, regardless of where you are in the, in the canon of Scripture, but it, but it was the original pattern in the garden. It is the commended pattern. And while polygamy was tolerated in the Old Testament, it was frowned upon even then. It was limited even then. And then it becomes outright disqualifying when we come into the New Testament. That is a reasonable summary of what the Bible has to say about polygamy. We jump back into our story at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. So again, everything we said about Sarah back in chapter 23 can be repeated here in terms of dying in faith. Abraham and Sarah never possessed the land that God promised. They paid for a burial ground in the land as a gesture of faith, believing that one day God would give it to them. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Being buried in the promised land communicated two things, according to the author of Hebrews. First of all, it communicated belief that God would give the land of Canaan to the children of Abraham at some point in the future. Secondly, it communicated a belief that not even death could keep people of faith from inheriting and possessing all that God had promised to give them. As with Sarah, so with Abraham. Verse 11 goes on to say, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Matthew Henry says here, note, the blessing of Abraham did not die with him, but survived to all the children of the promise. So there is a sense in which the promise is inside the line, and it passes here from Abraham to Isaac, from father to son, but not to all his sons, only to the son of promise. 
Thus, we have a brief interlude to tell us what happened to Ishmael, the son of Abraham, who was not the son of promise. Verse 12 says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages, and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael's family, having made their bow first, to use the phrase of Derek Kidner, the family of Isaac now takes center stage. Verse 19 says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, notice here that Rebekah is barren. Nothing is easy in the life of faith. Just like it was not enough for Sarah to be married to a person of faith, so here it is not enough for Isaac to be the son of a man of faith. I remember hearing once that God has no grandchildren. So it is here. God wants to stir up faith in Isaac, and he does it by withholding children from his wife, Rebekah. That's important for us to see. The Bible says again and again and again that God uses difficulty and affliction to create faith in his chosen people. Job 36, 15, for example, says, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. God uses personal and familial pain and adversity to create and develop faith. You need to know this. God will teach a man to pray by making his wife sick or by withholding children or by frustrating a dream or expectation. Knowing that can save you a lot of time and heartache in the Christian life. Now, Isaac figured it out. He became a man of prayer. Verse 21 says that. And it goes on to say, And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, two things should be noted here. First of all, there are 20 years between Isaac's prayer in verse 21 and God's answer in verse 26. Remember that, right? How does God stir up faith? By difficulty and delay. The other thing we should note here is the primacy of God's decision over ours. Make no mistake, Esau will make choices in this story. Really, really bad choices. Disqualifying choices. 
But God's choice comes first. Here in chapter 25, verse 23, God says that the older shall serve the younger. Before they had done anything good or bad, God made his choice. The Apostle Paul reflects on this at length in Romans 9. He says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Romans 9, 10 to 12. So Paul tells us what happened and why it happened. He says that God made his choice first, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God did this, Paul says, to teach us that God's choice is always primary and it has nothing to do with our works or merit. This is a difficult doctrine, but it is taught on almost every page of the Bible. Pastor Paul, I want to pause here if we can, because that is a difficult doctrine, and I think that our listeners may need some help wrapping their heads around this. You said there that God's choice is always primary, and it has nothing to do with our works or merit. All right, well, the obvious question then is, what does it have to do with? Why does God choose some and not others? Well, that's a good question, and you are right that the Bible tells us what the reason isn't, But it doesn't tell us what the reason is, or at least not in any clear or obvious way. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul's concern is to preserve the freeness of God's choice. Paul is teaching negatively here. He is saying that when God chooses a person, it has nothing to do with their ethnicity. It has nothing to do with their social status, and it has nothing to do with their relative righteousness. So he talks about Isaac and Ishmael first. Both were biological sons of Abraham, but that doesn't mean anything. Paul says in verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God isn't just going to save everyone who is biologically related to Abraham. His election is not based on race. And then Paul goes on and uses our story in Genesis 25 to show that God's election isn't about birth order or social status or relative righteousness either. He says in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, close quote. So it's not about future righteousness, it's not about birth order or social status. None of those things factor in when God elects to save. That's Paul's main concern in Romans 9, to wipe away false assumptions about why God chooses some and not others to be saved. He is attacking pride and he is attacking entitlement. And he wants to preserve the freeness of God's choice and the graciousness and undeservedness of our redemption. And that's how he lands his argument in Romans 9. He says in verses 15 to 16, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, closed quote. Salvation is not about what you do. It is about what God does. Therefore, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Okay, so it isn't about race or merit or social status. God makes his choice for whatever reason, but then we make our choices too after that, don't we? Absolutely. Everyone in the Jacob and Esau story is making choices. But as we begin to work our way through the story, we're going to see that God's choice is primary. It is the fact that God has set his love on Jacob that shapes the entire narrative. Jacob is not a free man in this story. He is pursued by the electing love of God, whereas Esau makes his choices and experiences the consequences that go along with those choices. And that is what the Bible says about this whole matter of God's election. The Bible says that God chooses to display his mercy in saving and transforming some, and he chooses to display his justice in leaving others in their freely chosen path and behavior. They do what they want, and they get what they deserve. Paul says that in verse 18 of Romans 9. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. To harden is to leave people on a path that leads further down into darkness, futility, and ruin. They choose it, and he lets them go. But the thing is, we would have chosen it too. But for reasons of his own mercy, he pursues us, he woos us, he wins us, he turns us, and he brings us home to himself. Thanks be to God. I think it's a truth that people come to love over time. You have to realize that you would have never chosen God unless he pursued you and interfered with you, really, and did everything that was necessary to bring you to that place. And when you're becoming a Christian, you're very aware of the choices you are making. And then after you've been a Christian for a decade or so, I think you're very aware of all the things that God did first to get you to that place. That's it exactly. And therefore, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Absolutely. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Again, that means that there were 20 years between their first efforts at getting pregnant and when they actually had their babies. That is a long time of praying, waiting, despairing, believing, hoping, and praying again. God knows how to make a believing people who is a teacher like the Lord. These verses also tell us a little bit about the boys themselves. Esau's red and hairy, and Jacob comes out holding Esau's heel. Jacob does not want to be left behind. His name means, may he be at the heel. And because of how he lived the rest of his life, it came to mean deceiver or supplanter. Jacob certainly didn't want to be left behind or left out. He wanted to be at the center of what God was doing. We'll learn more about that in just a little bit. Verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, 
a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Again, and you're probably going to get sick of me saying this, but the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It's the story of bad guys that need Jesus. This is not a perfect family. Far from it. They make mistakes, and they pay for those mistakes for a very long time. That's why these stories are in the Bible. We get to learn from our forefathers' mistakes and our foremothers' mistakes. It is not good to play favorites with your kids, as Isaac and Rebekah will learn the hard way. Verse 29 says, Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now here we see that God is not unjust. However difficult it is for us to understand how God's sovereignty and our responsibility go together, it cannot be denied that they do. God chose first. There's no doubt of that. But Esau made his choice as well. He did not care about the promises of God. He was not thinking about the future like his grandfather Abraham or his grandmother Sarah. He was a man of the present. He was a man of the earth. The author of Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The two words used to describe Esau in that passage, pornos and bebilos, define Esau as a man of base physical appetites. He's the opposite of a man of faith. He is ruled by his belly and by his immediate wants. That, that's not what faith is. Faith is about deferring immediate wants and focusing more on the long term. Faith is about deferring the immediate for the eternal, right? Faith is about the ability to put off the immediate in favor of the essential. Faith is about focusing more on the long term, right? Faith is always about believing that it's better in the long haul to trust in God. Faith is about deferring. Faith is about waiting. Faith is about trusting. Faith is about believing in the city whose architect and builder is the Lord. Now, Jacob had it. Esau did not. Esau traded eternity for a bowl of stew. The author of Hebrews says, Afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Too late, he realized that he had chosen poorly. Too late, he realized that he had paid far too high a price to satisfy his carnal appetites. There is a lesson in there for any 
with eyes to see. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, that's a pretty heavy ending to a really a pretty heavy story. God started working in Jacob's life when he was in the womb, but whatever he was doing for Jacob, he was not doing for Esau, and it worked out in Esau's life. I'm sure we have listeners who are wondering if that was fair on God's part to do. Help us out with that. Well, if God were going to be fair, then he would give us all what we deserve. He'd let us make the bad choices that our fallen and sinful nature inclines toward, and he would leave us in the horrible consequences that result. So let's thank God that he isn't fair. He's something better than fair. He is just, and he is merciful. He is just. There is no injustice in this story. Esau was making free choices. God didn't force Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. Esau did that because he cared more about his immediate desires than he did about God's eternal purpose. So he made real choices, and God allowed him to experience the consequences that resulted from those choices. So he was perfectly just with respect to Esau, but he kept interfering in a merciful way with Jacob. He kept bending Jacob's story toward faith. That's who God is, and that's who God says that he is. In Exodus thirty-three nineteen, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is God. He shows mercy to some, and others he allows to harden in their rebellion. That is hard to figure out, but what's easy to figure out is that Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if God has been bending your life toward the person and work of Jesus, then my advice is that you stop fighting it and you just come. If you come, he will receive you and he will forgive you. That I know for sure. Amen. That's really helpful. And I know we're going to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.